Get your gear ready. This is a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. Greetings, listeners, and welcome once again to a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation a podcast dedicated to guiding you along your innovation expedition. I'm your host, Ben Tingey, joined again by Jay Gerhardt. How are you, Jay? I'm awesome, Ben. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I've gotten to know our guest a little bit over the last, I don't know, six months or so, really gaining an appreciation for what he brings to the world of innovation. He, he des- I think he describes himself as, as simultaneously curious, laid back and aggressive and it somehow works. And I think our listeners will find that's, that's true. He's intensely curious, but he's, he's laid back. So uh, it will be a fun conversation. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to, you've been talking a lot about some of the ideas you've learned from, from this guest for a while. And so um, this is going to be awesome. Well, without further ado, today's guest is Scott Burleson, Senior Vice President at the AIM Institute, an organization on a mission to change B2B or business-to-business innovation. Scott is an experienced trainer, coach, and innovation practitioner. He's an expert in outcome-driven innovation and a thought leader in the world of jobs to be done. In 2020, he published a book, The Statue in the Stone, Decoding Customer Motivation with the 48 Laws of Jobs to be Done Philosophy. He also co-hosts a new podcast called Product Quest, and you can dig into deep conversations on innovation and product strategy by listening and subscribing to that podcast. Prior to all this work, Scott worked for nearly 10 years at John Deere, where he applied jobs to be done in ODI, and he's worked at Stratagen and the Carolinas chapter of the Product Development and Management Association. We encourage you to follow him on Twitter at the handle at New Product Dog. With that, Scott, welcome to a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation podcast. Ben and Jay, thank you so much. Happy to be here. Hey, listeners, listen up. If you haven't yet provided a rating and a review on this podcast uh, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, would you please hit pause and go do that? Then you can head over to Twitter and follow us at Sherpa Pod. We're a member of the Health Podcast Network, and so we encourage you to check out the other podcasts in the network where you can learn more on Twitter at HealthPodNet. All right, Scott, let's dive in. This is our standard opening question that we like to do with our guests, uh, and this is a, a fill-in-the-blank exercise. So fill in the blanks for us. I wanted to be a blank when I grew up. Now I'm a blank, and they both blank. I wanted to be the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys when I grew up. Roger Staubach was my hero as a kid. You know, I think it had so. Uh oh, <laughs> Jay doesn't like it. Maybe Jay's a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And was Terry Bradshaw your man, Jay? Yep. Is that what? Oh yep. my gosh! Yeah, we wouldn't have got. We would have fought. In, well, in the seventies, late seventies, early eighties, it seems like you're either a Cowboys or. a Steelers fan and just happened to be the year I sort of started paying attention to the NFL was the year uh, the Cowboys won Super Bowl 12. I don't know what number we're up to, but that sort of dates you now when you remember what, what Super Bowl. We beat the Broncos. It was fantastic. And I was, so I was, uh, I was locked in for life. Had the, had a Cowboys uh, jersey, number 12 and everything. Now, so today, what do I do today? That's an interesting question, you know. 
I, uh, my, my professional interest really centered around new product development and innovation, uh, really initially beginning when I met a guy named Men Bassador. Uh, I, was, I was an engineer with Converse, and he had, a, he had this system for teaching innovation. It's called Creative Problem Solving. It was many years ago. I'm still in touch with men today. It's fantastic. I first learned about divergence and convergence and brainstorming, and it just, there's no way around it. It, it changed my life. And then when I met a guy, Tony Oick, read his stuff, became, wow, I'm really more interested in innovation. Um, and so that's really my deep expertise has been. And I said, what's the commonality between being the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys versus, um, you know, being, I guess, a coach, trainer, thought leader, whatever that is, and innovation. Well, I think one of the things that appealed to me about, about um, well, every, 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 a lot of kids want to be the quarterback. Why? Because you're, you're sort of in charge, you're making decisions. But I think it's about, it's about the strategy, quite honestly. I don't know if I could have articulated this as a kid, but if you're the quarterback calling the plays, I mean, you can do these low risk things like you can run the ball up the middle and it's, it's sort of psychological with your with the defense. Like there's are you going to execute the plays? Are you going to just do whatever you do and do it better than anybody else and just dare them to stop you? Or are you going to be sort of uh, tricky and you know do something unconventional? They think you're going to run and you're going to pass. And so, again, I don't know if I could have articulated that, but I think that's what always I really enjoyed about football and the in the quarterback or at least calling the plays is on this this strategic nature of it are you again are you just going to you're just beating down the defense uh run 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 and then ultimately you're going to pass or i mean that that mental part of it i mean the physical part i probably would have gotten destroyed (laughs) (laughs) but so so now so um with innovation new product development it's 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 you keep score like certain products win certain products lose they earn dollars you're, it's very similar. Are you going to do whatever you do better than anybody else in the world? And you know what? Stop me. Just try and stop me because I do it better than anybody else. Or am I? Or am I going to? I'm going to sort of look where the soft places are and kind of, you know, like in baseball. Sorry if I'm mixing my metaphors. But, you know, hit them where they ain't. In other words, you know. So I really, I think I enjoy the competitive nature of of both. Um, I'll say this. One thing I loved about being a product manager with John Deere that I don't get to do as much as a consultant is that you see products through till they launch and you keep score. You keep score. There's certain you're you have competition, you know, you have certain revenues, you do this and that. But, you know, the thing you, you don't like about keeping score is there's no you just sort of argue about who won. Uh, there was some ice skating scandal like in the early, uh, not uh, late early two thousands, I forget what it was, but like there's some bribes, and supposedly the Canadians won, but the Russians also also won. Why are they even talking about it? Because it's just like people voting, which I get. I mean, you're trying to make something subjective, objective, but 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 points on the scoreboard or dollars in the bank are completely objective. And at the end of the day, you can declare a winner, you can declare a loser. And as one who really has been a lot of effort in developing this craft you know i if if i win if i have the best ideas and they win i want to see those points and if i don't then i don't and i can i can learn from that as well but but what i don't like is when we just sort of argue about it and we never really we never really get that finality or conclusion that's a very long answer to that question 
That, that's that's great. I, I think another angle on it uh, too, because I know you're you're really a, a teacher of innovation methods and jobs to be done. I think a a good quarterback or a good point guard, uh, stars of teams often make the others around them better. And in the the role that uh, you're going to talk to us about, I, I think that's kind of what you're charged with as well. You know, it's it's like there's different levels to learning something, right? Level one is is learning it yourself and being a practitioner, being able to do it. But when you when you get to where you can do something, you you're almost fooled into into a false sense of mastery because I can do it, I can execute it, I can do this. You don't really get to other levels until you want you try to teach it to somebody else. And also writing a book sort of that way, because when you do that, all of a sudden they'll ask a question. What about this situation? And as a practitioner, I never had to do that. I never had to answer that question. So when you're teaching things and or writing a if you're trying if you're trying to write a book comprehensively, those you can't leave those empty spaces anymore. And um, so you get challenged. And so when you have to, you know, one of the one of the underrated. Well, when in college. I learned the hard way that it was better to study in groups because I just, I'm introverted. I like to study. I just, just give me my work. Let me do it by myself. That worked in high school. I want to keep doing it. But the kids that studied in groups always did better. And one of the great, one of the reasons I believe that is, is like everybody, like I know something a little better than somebody else. Somebody else does something a little better than me. And so we end up explaining it to each other, teaching it to each other. It's that process of internalizing and talking about it where you really go to, um, you know, a higher level of knowledge. I never had any aspirations to be a teacher or a coach or any of this thing, but sort of ended up there along the way. As a practitioner, I didn't know as much as I thought I did because I did have a measure of success. It was only when teaching it and getting challenged with questions. And now I've been asked everything and I don't care anymore. And it's like, you ask me anything. If I get stumped, I'm like, cool, that was a great question. But I've I've heard a lot of the same questions at this point, as you can imagine. But there's still, there's still a lot of areas and jobs to be done that are not that have room to be developed more, which is actually a sort of one of my more current interests. That's awesome. And maybe we could hear some of those ideas at some point, but, but before we start nerding out on, on jobs to be done, I wanted you to, if you could tell us a bit more about the AIM Institute and, and your role and, and its objective. The AIM Institute is wholly focused on helping B2B companies innovate and our core process is called new product blueprinting. It's uh, it's a voice of the customer process, beginning with undercovering a large set of customer needs and helping to prioritize those needs. But one thing, there's a couple of things that are unique about us. One thing is that we're B2B focused. I mean, actually, everything we do would apply in B2C, but there are some B2B differences, um, which we, we can get into if you choose. That's one. The other thing is our it's... Um, our, our mission in life is to help other companies, give them the skills and tools they need to be able to execute the innovation process, which is very different than a long list of companies that essentially do, you know, market research, which is great. It's nothing, nothing wrong with that. Of course, we do that as well. But it's, uh, it's again, this, this taking on the challenge of teaching somebody is more difficult than doing it yourself. And another level is getting an organization to internalize, to to take to take on a new core process and execute it well. And uh, we've got tools, coaching. We've got a huge suite 
of solutions to help with that. It's all from our founder, Dan Adams. Another question I wanted to ask related to all of this, and, and maybe it, it touches on your book a little bit, which uh, I know we want to ask about, um, but you, you've, you've described jobs to be done as a philosophy. Uh, what, what's, what's, tell us about why you, you like to use that word instead of like methodology or something else. And what, what's profound about philosophy? Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you asked. To my knowledge, I could be wrong, but to my knowledge, I'm the first person to use that to link those together. Maybe I'll maybe I'm not correct on that. But a philosophy, at least in the in the earliest historical uses of the term, meant something useful. It it meant it meant you know, it meant rules and ways of seeing the world that were useful, that could help you to do something, more so than you know, sitting on the mountainside and just thinking, you know, is helping to be useful. And when I when I read Tony Oak's book, What Customers Want, I mean, if I'm if I'm tracing back through the milestones, very significant that impacted my career. It be hard. I mean, first first one for sure, uh, learning Minbasser's method. But the next one, reading What Customers Want by uh, Tony Oak. And when I read this, you know, it described. When you read it, it's like it, this is, it describes a market research process. It's very, that book's pretty close to the research, but as I'm reading it, I'm like, this is more, this is, yes, it's a market research process, but this is a, this is a philosophy. This is a way of thinking. It's jobs to be done. It's a way of thinking that has a value all to itself. If you never, if you never do any research projects, if you never do any ODI projects, the thinking of what's a mark, what it's a market. What's the job to be studied and and why are they doing that job? And why, what does that help them to get done? And what does that help them to get done? And then we can go the other way. What are all the different methods they use to accomplish this? And what are, and it helps you to see your competition in a new way. So I, I struggled with what to call it. You know, what it has been commonly called, we'll start there, is jobs to be done theory. That's what is people call it, jobs to be done theory. And like a theory, a theory is something like you, you can prove or disprove is like, it just, that didn't feel right to me. I did like it just, the word theory it was what was commonly used as the term to enclose it or to, to give it a name. And I just didn't think it fit as much as, and so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And uh, that's the, the word I, when writing a book, you know, you have to make these decisions, but I'm that in, in which in the end it's like, ah, would I change it, this or that? But I, I'm, I'm good with that one. I like being the, I like jobs be done philosophy. I mean, I think philosophy is a great word for it because it's it's about the way you you see the world. Uh, uh, I, I I actually think both theory and philosophy ap- apply to it. A, a theory is something you can use to predict what might happen in the future, and right. and you can use jobs to be done that way, but. Uh, you know, our friend and teacher, Bob Mesta, said to us early on, I, just in the very early days when we worked with him, when he was teaching it to us, he said, once you see it, you can't unsee it. That's right. And that, to me, is very similar to philosophy, because, again, it's this, this is the way I see the world. You know, you interact with a lot of people, you, you teach people in other inter- organizations. Does it ever just really frustrate you when someone else doesn't see it and they don't they might understand what you're talking about but they just you just want them to embrace it but they don't embrace it well i i um it's interesting there's even back when promoting it within john deere so i printed out a a, um, a powerpoint of outcome driven innovation 
you know, and I, and I went knocking on literally, well, I mean, I set up calls, but I went from door to door through all the leaders and I would sit and sit down with them at their table and I would flip the pages and I would walk them through outcome driven innovation. And then there was, I forget the name, but within our division, there was like a governing board and I, I booked, I, I got on the agenda and I just a product manager. I got up there in front of all of them I pulled, and I, and I shared outcome driven innovation. And I was too foolish to know that if I was being foolish, you know, but I believed in it that much. I believed that it was that powerful. Now, when you do that a lot, that's your first, that's your first time to get a lot of reactions of different people. And what I noticed is that you can always put them in buckets. 100%, there's a group that gets it. And they're like, I mean, they almost get it. So they almost, it's so intuitive to them. It's almost like, well, that's, it's like, it's almost like, why are you even telling me this? This is like, this is obvious. Oh, now that I see, now it's also a research process. So they get it and they're able to roll with you real quickly. Um, there's definitely another group. Well, when you're talking to leaders on that, there's a group that doesn't understand it at all. But worse than that, they're not, a, they're sort of, reluctant to admit it right they don't want to they don't want to appear weak so they pretend they understand it and that's Mm. that's but you don't get good questions and so you start to sense you sort of feel that out of way so that's my first experience with with understanding that it's i don't know why but it just my observation it tends to be very intuitive and quick or it's like very hard to grasp it's just it doesn't seem to be their segments it doesn't seem to be middle ground i would not say i get frustrated um, and maybe that's because I'm, I'm in a sales role often as well. And so I take responsibility for what somebody, if they, if they do or don't understand it, I, t- I don't blame them. I take, res- it, they're just, they're in one of the, it's like a personality type. So here's an extrovert. It's not my fault. They're an extrovert. It's not my fault. They're an introvert. That's just what they are. So I don't take personal responsibility for how much they get it or don't get it. Now I do end up with this, this, um, sort of uh, decision at some point, if I'm describing a market or something with a customer, am I going to, or a client or prospect, somebody I'm working with, am I going to take the time to explain jobs or do I just do sort of a mental translation and don't burden the conversation with the terminology of jobs be done? Mm-hmm. Now, if, if we can talk in jobs be done language, we can have a much better conversation. We can get there faster. But if, especially if it's an earlier conversation with somebody, I, 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 in fact, maybe that's sort of a, a skill you develop over time. Is I can I can have a jo- I can have a conversation, and I'm just sort of maybe it's, I don't speak another language. I'm American, I only speak English. But maybe this is something what it's like to speak another language. I can speak with in my brain. I'm sort of translating as I'm asking them questions. Who's your competition? Who's that? What is some? Why does somebody purchase your product? What does it help them to do better? It would be a lot simpler if everybody understood it well. But, you know, if, if somebody, if somebody doesn't, you know what, let me tell you what's worse. It's not, if somebody just doesn't understand it, doesn't have a, a enthusiasm for it, then we have to, we have to use jobs be done to understand what's going on a little bit. It is a solution. It is a product. And it may not be something that's helping them to do, to get something done better, in which case they're naturally not going to be interested or they haven't seen, seen the connection. So no, I, I, I don't get frustrated, but here's one thing that's, worse that it's very hard to communicate with somebody with and that's somebody who also doesn't understand it but pretends to and they'll know just enough terminology and on, here's here's the phrase that always worries me if somebody says you know they're they're all they're emotional jobs there's personal some of them are personal and some of them are social and they spend a lot of time talking about the emotional jobs now there certainly are there's certainly the 
emotional side of it. But that's not the lead story for innovation, usually, usually. And so if they are overly enthusiastic about sort of teaching that point, my experience is usually their knowledge is very is very thin and it's very hard to communicate with them because if you you don't know if you can use the language if you can't use the language in a way they're not being honest with you because they're not they're not they're if you say something they don't understand they're not letting you know they don't understand it that, that that's the group that i get that's very frustrated to try to communicate with oh that's yeah it's really interesting i i think there's also a segment of folks that may be, may develop some understanding, but in in the parlance of the, the force, forces of progress, they have habits, they have existing tools yeah. and processes. Maybe yeah. you're in marketing right. and you have a language right. or you think you have a language right. around these things and jobs comes in and, and it's sort of similar, but it's sort of not. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's hard to release from the old way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, one of the one of the wonderful things of working for Stratagen is you just you have this language accessible. It's always be done. You can talk to each other. You can nerd out when you're traveling together. It's just it's so it's so much ease. You can you can talk about the difficulties. I, I mentioned there's some aspects of jobs you don't I think are undeveloped. You can talk about those. But yeah, folks who get it, no problem. Folks who don't get it, honestly, no problem. But the folks who pretend to get it more than they really do, that's that's a problem. <laughs> Interesting. In the book, one of the chapters, I mean, it's a great book. It was just so much deep thinking about jobs to be done. I mean, you wrote 48 Laws, so you, you did some thinking about that. But at the time, I found the value proposition chapter really helpful particularly for a specific project, we were just starting to kick off. We were talking about value propositions. So getting some clarity around what that is was, was good. So having, having your, your template on that was very helpful. But the, the chapter was about there being a paradox surrounding value propositions. Talk a little bit about what that paradox is. Yeah, there, there is a paradox because there is an objective reality. But our, but at the end of the day, it only, but a customer is only, their perception is ultimately what matters. So let's just take an, let's just take an example. Let's say, so I came from the tractor world. Let's say that one of the needs was minimize the noise level of the tractor. So they wanted to be quieter, right? So that's, that's clear enough. Well, you can vary, or so as a value proposition, you, you, your assumption is, well, that's important unsatisfied if our tractor is quieter than the competition's tractor then they'll they'll buy so that's what we're going to innovate on well very objectively objectively we can measure how you know the decibel level we can take it down and so that from that perspective the value proposition is objective it, it is it was 70 decibels now it's 55 so it's absolutely objective but all that matters is in the brain of the person, how they perceive that noise. So here's, so the value proposition. And so I just, you know what I I came to, like, this is a paradox. I I'm not going to resolve it. I can't resolve it. Let's just, it's just a paradox where the value proposition is at both two things. It's a, it's absolutely objective and it's absolutely subjective because it's measured. It's only measured in the customer's brain. And so there's a really good uh, British, 
uh, advertising guy, Rory Sutherland. He's been my latest obsession. I've been, re- I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's mm-hmm. fantastic. He's got a podcast. He, I, I enjoy him as a guest on podcasts more than he's a, he's a host as well, but he's a host. He's interviewing other people. And quite honestly, I'm more interested in, in his, what he has to say than what his guests have to say, but he, he doesn't have, he doesn't, uh, jobs be done. It's not one of his core uh, methods, but he speaks very much in terms of this, the significance of what a cut, what a person interprets and how they're, you know, the subjective nature of that. Yeah, it's really the, you know, it's something that it's, it's hard to do. It's holding two ideas in your head at the same time. And, and what I like about when you, you wrote about it, the objective part of it, it it's kind of the supply side aspect of it, where if you're going to say you're better, you better be better. That's and right. It, 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 you, you know, you can maybe fake it until you make it, but at some point someone's going to find you out. Right. So you, you need to actually make it objectively better, but then also realize that the customer has other ways of describing it. I, as you were talking about John Deere's, uh, I, I don't have a tractor or anything, but I do have stereo speakers. And I was thinking yeah. about, you know, if you make stereo speakers or turntables, I suspect you have all these specifications and, and very detailed things that maybe you've worked on this before. So you can like quantify and say, okay, my Sonos or my Bose speakers are objectively better, but you know, I don't know anything about that stuff. It's like, I just know it sounds better or not. So it's like those two things kind of have to have to meet in some way. Oh, 100%. And what's interesting is, and I think the part that people's subjective um, understanding of truth, I think that's well understood. But what they miss, Jay, is exactly what you said. My opinion, if we say it's quieter, it needs to be quieter. It's not enough to just to only do the advertising, to, to, to pretend, and this is maybe my opinion, to only pretend as if it's quieter. And we just, you know, you, it has, but I mean, so even though we have this paradox, but the action to take is crystal clear, make the thing quieter, and then show how it's quieter. And, and by, but then work with the customer. Do they perceive it as quieter? And if not, you have to look a little, you have to look a bit deeper. Now I've sort of intentionally chosen a very, something that's very objective, easy to measure. Um, because if we, you're talking about sound quality, it gets, it gets more difficult and lots of things in life are more difficult to measure. So, but, but the point I totally agree with Jay is whatever you, it's not just enough to say it is not to, I mean, it's dishonest for one thing. I mean, maybe you'll make a, co- a sale or two, but the, the the conclusion for us as innovators is is um, this paradox doesn't bother us at all. We if we if it needs to be quieter, make the thing quieter. Now, if they don't perceive it as quieter, then we ask a question. Maybe we didn't pr- improve the performance quite enough. Maybe it wasn't enough. Maybe it needed to be significant a significant difference, mm-hmm. um, or there's something else. Or there's something else going on, which is why, you know, so with with an ODI type process, you know, we, so we're going to learn it needs to be quieter. And then that's also why it's not enough to just make it quieter and be like we're done. We need to take the thing back to the customer, ha- 
have ours with a reference because a value proposition, you have to have a reference. And then, and by the way, you probably, your first question is not, are they quieter? You're going to say, what's your impression of this tractor? What's your impression of this? And you're going to see, do they even notice it? And, and then, and then ultimately you might ask them, well, what do you think about them? If they bring it up, if they don't bring it up, you might ultimately ask them, what do you think about the noise level or this or that? And tell them they tell the difference. That's why we always have to bring that concept back to the customer and now we're, we're having them to measure it again. And if they don't perceive it as quieter, then we got we got to do something different. And if we're only thinking and talking about value propositions, say in the realm of marketing, and we're just talking about how to write an ad or something, right? Uh, that's one thing, but, but you got to bring it back to product right. and, and connect what, what you're actually saying out there. To customers in the market and bring it back to does does the product actually do this? So it's a it's a connection of the the demand side and the supply side. So great way to look at it. I haven't I haven't thought about it exactly like that, but that's right. And and Rory Sutherland again, I highly recommend. Listen, he's got a book. I think it's called Alchemy of Something. Now he, he focuses more on the advertising. That's his business. That's the, my business is innovation. His business is advertising marketing. So I'll give him a pass on that because probably. Yeah. That's pr- when he's working with a client, that's probably out of the scope of work to change but the product. You know? they're, yeah, they're not asking him to do that. Yeah. Well, changing gears a, a little bit, Scott, you, you recently posted something fun on LinkedIn and, and you had a great podcast discussion with your, your friends, Jan and, and Jonathan, about chicken wings versus chicken tenders. Yeah. And, and, and you talked about it in their popularity and relationship to each other. And you're trying to find out if it breaks jobs to be done. So I got a couple of questions. What, what caused you to want to try to break jobs to be done? And then maybe just give us a little overview of that, that dialogue that, that you've had on it. Yeah, what I'm, you learned I'm, through the dialogue. Yeah, you bet. I'm constantly trying to break jobs to be done because at the end of the day, I actually don't think it will be broken, can be broken, but it helps you to under, put it. We're breaking it by trying to put it in context where it seems to not fit. Or well, you mentioned that so a theory is something that helps you predict what's going to happen where it appears to predict incorrectly. And so if you line up chicken tenders versus um versus chicken wings and just look at the process of eating them well chicken tenders you could eat in the car whatever you can just you know you can dip them easily no mess you can use a knife and fork where with wings you know you've got mess all over your hands you've got to mess around with you know the gristle and it's just it's everything about it is um is a more difficult process now you might say well but it's you know it's different meat quality the wings are fattier okay well let's go with thighs i mean you know there's not uh, thighs are similar in meat quality to wings, but thighs are also not as popular as wings. So, so I think that the fat content and taste, I think that gets um, dismissed a bit. I'll tell you where one of the things that made me think about it is um, I have a, a friend who was a friend of Frank Perdue, the, the chicken mm-hmm. uh, magnet. And fr- he quoted Frank Perdue as saying, well, in the 1980s, every, you know, the breasts were the most valuable part of the chicken. Everybody wanted the breasts. And it was like you could, 
you know, cut the breasts out, sell them and throw the rest of the way. And he commented 20 years later in the early 2000, the wings were the most valuable part. It was like, you could cut the wings off and throw the rest away. Um, and so it's like, wow. So this is like, so the you know, preferences seem to be changing, but I, but I kept going back to this difficulty of eating. And I have a lot of thoughts about um, how jobs be done helps negotiate this apparent paradox. Um, but it was interesting because a, uh, uh, getting reactions from people. Some people like yourself, Jay, just found it intriguing and it leads to a lot of other questions. Other folks just weren't, they weren't drawn in as much uh, to the question, but I still think it's quite interesting. But very quickly, I mean, where my head went uh, is why compare them to each other? Do, do chicken wings, why do we assume that chicken wings and chicken tenders would compete with each other? Yeah. Well, I guess just because they're similar products. I mean, they're similar. They're they're chicken meat. And, you know, you know, but it's like the the questions it naturally starts to drive is, though, well, what segment would prefer one would prefer the other, for example? And where how to how does context make a difference? Well, I think you said you you prefer chicken wings, right? I do. Yeah. When, when When do you eat them? See the win. That's the important. That's the big thing. As Tony Owick would uh, would also tell us, you know, we think of segments as people, but the set you can be in one segment one day and another segment uh, as the context changes. As you move from business traveler to um, to traveling on vacation, you know your priorities for what's important that trip probably change. And likewise, just to be real simple, um, if I'm traveling in the car driving, guess. You can imagine which one do I prefer, the chicken tenders, because it's just easier. If I'm if I'm in the you know if I'm in the bar with the buddies, you know I'm probably drinking or eating chicken wing. It's a different context. If I'm at if I'm at home by myself and it's just like one of these glorious fall Saturdays and I'm gonna I'm gonna waste all day watching football. I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna eat so, chicken wings. So so chicken wings are. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I, I haven't had chicken wings for a really long time. And a, a story, I was talking to my wife about this. I think one of the last times I had chicken wings, I was sick. This was a really long time ago. This might've been 20 years ago. And I, I either had the flu or a really bad cold. And, but I was still hungry. I want something. And for some reason I said, sweetie, I want chicken wings from Hooters. Because they're just really good. And so she, I like, Ben knows I have like the best wife in the world. And she like goes, drives to Hooters, goes in. (laughs) Yeah, great environment for her to go into and gets me chicken wings. I probably haven't had them since, but it was like something about, you know, I was sick. Yeah. But I don't know if I wanted something spicy or something like that. Maybe I wanted an indulgence. And Probably prior to that, the only time I would eat them is, yeah, in the bar with buddies when I was younger. I'm not in that context anymore. So I hadn't had chicken wings in in forever. So I, I love what you said about, you know, there's a lot of discussion. You know, obviously, ODI and the way Tony approaches jobs is really different from the way Bob approaches jobs. But there's also so many similarities where we both look at it. And because you and I have a philosophy of looking at the world through jobs to be done, we look at it as like, yeah, it's context. It's different segments. Right. It's like 
chicken tenders probably competes with ribs. You know, what's a messy, indulgent thing I can, you know, eat versus, you know, something I can pick up and, and dip. So it's, it's also, you know, the process of enjoying the experience of a meal versus just eating and sort of, you know, consuming yeah. the calories because you're ready to move on. Yeah. If I'm sitting here at my desk and I'm like between meetings, I'm going to choose the tenders over the wings because I just yeah. sort of want to eat quickly. Yeah. I don't, I, it's not about the experience. And from a social perspective, you're only going to eat wings with people where you're okay that you have a you know messy face and messy yeah. fingers and stuff. You're not going to do it in a context where you don't know the people and it's a more formal setting and all of that. Yeah. So maybe chicken tenders feel a little bit more functional. And I assume I don't have kids, but I assume kids eat a lot of chicken tenders and it's like, it's a way to feed them and it doesn't seem too awful because it's chicken. Although a lot of chicken tenders are probably <laughs> really, really, well, you know, I want to know what's in them, but, but the wings, yeah, I'm eating, but then I've got this social and emotional aspect. It's like, I want to indulge myself. I want to go out and be messy with the friends. Yeah, well, give me give me several things, Jack. To first of all, I, I do have kids, and chicken wing, chicken tenders is a common thing to go to because they eat it. First of all, will they eat it? Well, they'll they'll eat it, and also the the choking hazard is relatively low. You, as a parent, you think about will they eat it, and will they will they? You worry about choking, you know, choking and drowning. That's two big things, um, and so. And it's just easy and you get them anywhere. And especially if your kids have a limited palate or just, you know, kids are usually not like, Hey, I'd like sushi today. You know, um, they're really, they're not expensive. They're everywhere. And so chicken tenders and fries, boom. It's just as a parent, you know, it's like, uh, you don't want to think too hard. It's like, mm -hmm. it's something that, that, uh, that works. Now, when we went on to discuss this, we discussed other things that people preferred that require more effort. Yeah. One of those just sticking with the meal is, um, if you go to a really nice restaurant, you know, you're more like and you order crab uh, or blue crab here in North Carolina, um, you're going to get like the whole crab, which is a lot more effort, not a little bit, but a lot more effort than if they were to give you a, a, a pad of, of um, back fin meat. Now, the back fin meat's much easier to eat. It's, just, it's the same. I, I have... I have a hard time imagining it tastes any different, but, but so it, it gets to this. It, there's something about this experience of opening the crab and being social and enjoying it. And I will say this, I think this, just this, this part about the experience. So it's not like jobs we done fails, but I think it's something that's underdeveloped. I think, I think there's more that jobs be, I mean, you know, the, the job of, you know, I think there's more that it could do to help us understand this, this, um, this, I, if I describe to you this, you know, I really enjoy this experience of eating crab legs better than a pound of crab on my plate. I think that makes sense. I think we understand yeah. that, but, but I don't know that we have the jobs to be done. Maybe you guys can help me with it. Uh, language right at our disposal to explain it. I I think you the way you I, I think you're right. It it doesn't fail, but it would then if I was doing interviews, if I was doing switch interviews about yeah. you know basically maybe I operate these crab restaurants and I'm trying to understand why people hire an incredibly complicated and expensive right crab dinner and they right. and they're like yeah it's just the experience about it. It's like well. Uh, 
tell me, tell me what you hope for out of that experience or something like that. And, and try to get their language. It's, uh, you know, Bob does unpacking and you just relentlessly unpack words. Yeah. Which I know you also do an ODI because you want clarity. Yeah. And desired outcome statements. Are we trying to understand, okay, what's a good experience? Well, you know, I, I want to, uh, you know, I want to treat myself. Yeah. You know, tell me, tell me more about treating yourself and you, you just, and you just get what I think you can get words behind social and emotional jobs. You just got to really dig for it. Yeah, I think so. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. But anyway, but what's one thing that's interesting, Jay, is that, you know, I, I described people that you know, sort of get jobs we've done and don't. The people that don't get jobs we've done thought this chicken wings versus chicken tenders was just the dumbest question. They didn't even understand why you're asking it. <laughs> what's the point? And the people who did get it often, didn't find it was interesting, but for a different reason, because the answer is sort of obvious. Like when I mentioned the things that the, the first thing about context, you guys are like, yeah, context. So the, 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 it's like, if you know jobs be done, it helps you to answer it so quickly. It's not interesting. And if you don't understand jobs be done, it's like, well, that's a dumb question. Why do those, you know, people eat wings and bars and you know, they just don't. Uh, so I didn't find it, the, this audience that would find it really intriguing and want to use jobs to be done to sort of tease through it was was smaller than I thought or hoped. <laughs> you had some discussion in there that that I liked. I, I can't. You talked about backpacking because I, I think you went from the process of purposefully doing things that are more difficult. Yeah, exactly. And you talked about. What were the three, you, you talked about there were kind of three segments of backpackers that you identified. Yeah. So if you go, if you see somebody backpacking, the, um, there's, there could be, we, there was one group of backpackers that is just like, they just want to give from A to Z. Like they're, they measure success by the number of miles. It's much more comparable to a marathon runner. It's not, they're not hanging out with nature. They're not, you know, they just want to like, how quickly can I hike from Canada to Mexico? And they're, they're just, they're smoking it. You know, then you've got another group that's like, couldn't be more opposite. You know, they're going to take pictures of caterpillars and, and bugs and really, and, um, and just really, it's just about, wow, just enjoying uh, every day, uh, every day out there. And you've got, I mean, you probably have more, but you've got another segment. It's like, Hey, I want, the whole point is to spend time with my family. Or spend time with yeah. my friends, whoever it's yeah. with. So it's almost so. Now, what? So the the competition changes a lot. If you're going, if you're running from Canada to Mexico, you probably are literally competing with. Hey, I might run a marathon. You know, I could go to Canada, Mexico, or I could run a marathon. Yeah. Yeah. But spending time with my family, that probably that probably competes with going to Disney World. Quite yeah. a different experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I forgot what the other one. Oh, I was taking pictures yeah. of uh, maybe photography is yeah. a thing, which competes with you know, whatever, whatever other art, maybe, maybe drawing or something completely, some other artistic pursuit. Where the, the benefit of that conversation comes in again, it got me thinking about, okay, well, why is this philosophy of jobs to be done helpful to people? Yeah. I started thinking about, okay, well, you have parks, maybe they're state parks or something like that who have, backpackers come so they they have the ability to deliver certain type of experience and have amenities and they they could either choose to target one of those segments so maybe we target the the most experienced backpacker or 
Uh, I, I know Tony talks a lot about, you know, have a platform that performs multiple jobs well. Well, yeah. what if they have ways of, you know, they have the amenities and the experience for the people who don't want to go 500 feet away from their car, as well as the really challenging thing, as well as the, you know, Instagram photo spots for the family. So if you, if you're the park and you understand those things, you can deliver upon the desired outcomes far better. A hundred percent. Yeah. And building on this uh, metaphor, it's like, it's like the, the backpacking trail, I guess, is your product. Right. And the, the typical way people get hung up is like, well, they just add, let's be talk about the attributes of my trail. Well, that, it's two and a half feet wide and it, it does this, it has this it climb, it does this. But but if you go back to those, just those three segments that I just sort of made up, you could totally imagine, you know, having water drop-offs or whatever, or something to help yeah. people to get there fast, get there faster. Maybe you've got maps that like you can really make up time here and here and you expect to go slower here. And here's a place you can ship your food to, to not waste time for the family group. Like you say, here's, there's places along the map, great photo opportunities, you know, and, and for the nature lovers, you could say, you know, this rare, uh, you know, ground squirrel is in this particular space. So, so everything, literally everything changes. It's all, it's still a trail. It could be the exact same trail. It's, it's three segments that have different contexts and different desired progress or outcomes. Yeah. And again, you could be a, a, a same person could be in a different segment. You could be like, hey, I'm going to go from Canada, Mexico this year. Next year, I want to spend some time with my family, in which case your priorities would be different because you're in a different segment. Yeah. It, it's the this is but without jobs to be done. I don't even know how you negotiate these conversations. And uh, or at least for me, I'm sure there's other other ways of doing it. By the way, some people find this surprising. I'm I'm. I'm not like jobs we done is the only way. It's just it's just useful. And that's what that's one it's useful and that's useful is enough. Useful is all that matters. It doesn't have to be it's it's sort of a high standard to say, hey, this has to be the theory of everything that solves every problem. It is the only one that anybody should ever use. You know, it's it's not a religion. It's a useful philosophy for for innovating. But it happens to be one that if 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 um, your colleagues, people you work with, if you have this language together, you can really excel a lot more than if you don't have. Just like if you if there's any language or the people don't have, you know, the difficulties of translation. Great. Yeah, even using jobs to be done has a context for it of it when when you would apply the philosophy, and and when something else might be a better fit. Um, that'd be interesting to think about what philosophies or methodologies compete with jobs to be done from a uh, customer understanding or or product development perspective. That'd be interesting. Scott, thank you so much for your time. This has been uh, a rich discussion and, and we appreciate being able to learn from you, especially with uh, your extensive background and and you kind of unique perspective. And uh, we, we could nerd out for, for hours on some of this stuff, but uh, um, perhaps uh, another episode could be uh, in the works or something like that. But um, again, thank you so much, Scott, for for your time with us today. You bet. I loved it. I enjoyed it. Well, this is Ben Tingey and Jay Gerhardt. Thanks so much for listening to a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation podcast.
new product dog with the Sherpas. That was fun. That was fun. Where some folks are reluctant to use jobs to be done, it's like, ah, it makes it look so complicated. No, man, it is complicated. It is. It's already complicated. It doesn't simplify it at all. That's just like saying no. It's, you know, it's just like hiding from it. Does it make it go away? 